Mike Rags and Todd Burlidge with a Blue Gold Report podcast. Fighting Irish sports from the inside out. Subscribe to the Blue Gold Report. It's not just talk, it's the Blue Gold Report. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the Blue Gold Report podcast. I'm Mike Rags, along with my co-host Todd Berlich, talking everything Notre Dame sports, and we've got a lot to get to today. Let me tell you, though, that the Blue Gold Report is brought to you by D.O. McComb and Sons Funeral Homes, and as always, once you find the podcast, make sure you rate us, comment about the show, and tell all your friends. Well, we're a little more than a month away from opening day with the kickoff against Michigan, and we've got a lot to talk about with Michigan as well. We're actually going to hear an interview with Brady Quinn that he did on the Big Ten Network talking about his days uh, with the team and, of course, the rivalry between the two schools and what it means potentially for Jim Harbaugh as well. Um, And Todd and I will kind of break down uh, the rest of getting ready for the year uh, as and we'll also talk about their next opponent as we rank their opponents from their opponents from worst to best and we're getting closer and closer to the better teams we think uh that they are playing this year but let's bring him in right now he is the lead writer for blue gold illustrated on all things notre dame football baseball basketball anything sports related it's our good buddy todd burlidge todd you have a good week I did. How are you doing, Rags? Good. I'm officially uh, getting. I'm getting ramped up now that uh, NFL's gone in the training camp. Uh, I'm getting more and more ready for football. I think you probably are too. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it starts to drag out here as you try to scramble to put these shows together. But hey, we're going to be getting into the Brian Kelly of camp opening here first week of August. So. Uh, we're going to have some more audio and a lot of different things coming up. A lot to talk about moving forward. Culver Academy is where they're heading, and uh, we'll be talking a lot about it in the month of August. Uh, Todd, you know, Brady Quinn talks about it a little bit. And, you know, I, I guess when you're looking back at the Michigan games, it's Ishmael and everything else as far as my lifetime between the, the two teams, the best moments for Notre Dame. Yeah, for sure. And Brady talks about, you know, where does this rivalry kind of rate? You know, I mean, obviously, a lot of people think that Notre Dame and Michigan played all these years in a row, and that's really not the case. There's been a lot of hiatus uh, in this series, but uh, it certainly is a proud, proud rivalry. And I think as much because these two teams recruit so many of the same players, the proximity, I think, is what really adds to this rivalry. And there's been a lot of bad blood, and it's going to be a lot of fun when uh, to kick off the season. To have this the opening game makes it even more exciting to me. Well, and to me, the best game I ever watched was a loss for Notre Dame, and that was the Denard Robinson game. That was just yeah. remarkable what happened in that, and that one always sticks out in my mind uh, as I was in a bar in downtown South Bend watching it, and, and just, uh, it was a night game, too, and just watching it, I was just mesmerized at what that guy could do yeah i was on the sidelines for that one i remember it, <laughs> I remember it well also yeah and uh, to think that the last time they played was at 31 nothing notre dame if i'm not mistaken yeah, I so think you're right Mich- Mich- michigan might remember that one a little bit uh and i'm talking about the 2011 uh i think they call it the miracle under the lights uh, uh that game uh up in uh well who cares what they call it? Uh, anyway, uh, Todd, this isn't the <laughs> the maze and uh, gold report. This is the blue and gold report. Uh, we've got some uh, blue gold nuggets to get to. What do you got? All right, here we go. Let's start with our usual watch list. Um, you have to touch on these, even though they're a little bit uh, irrelevant, but uh, you still got a hit on them. Outland Trophy, the watch list has been released for that, and Notre Dame put three on this list. This goes to the best interior lineman, be it offensive or defensive, Alex Bars. 
left guard there. Sam Mustafer, the center. Those are the two offensive uh, representatives. And Jerry Tillery on the defensive side. So three Irish players there on the Outland Trophy Award list. Alizé Mack, he has made the John Mackey watch list. Obviously expecting big things from him. We've been waiting for big things from him. We'll see if uh, he lives up. It's kind of interesting, Mack up for the Mackey Award. So the somewhat fitting there. Justin Yoon, he's up for the Lou Groza Award, best kicker, best place kicker, I should say. It's kind of interesting, as I was doing a little bit of research on this, his percentage of .808, that's tops uh, for Notre Dame kickers with more than 50 makes. So I thought that was interesting that he's tops on the list. Rags only needs 16 more field goals to leave Notre Dame as the all-time leader in that department, 20 more points to become the number one scoring kicker in Notre Dame history, and 46 points, which he's going to get both of those unless injury or something bites him, and 46 points to become Notre Dame's all-time leading scorer career-wise. So kind of quietly putting together one heck of a nice career here at Notre Dame. Uh, Let's see, Butkus watch list, uh, the best linebackers, obviously. Notre Dame has a couple on this. You can probably guess them. Drew Tranquil, the Fort Wayne guy, and then Tavon Coney, who recorded 116 tackles last year. It was the most since Manti Teo in 2012. Uh, Tao actually won the award in 2012, as he had a lot of hardware that year. Uh, moving on to Julian Love, defense or cornerback, one of the best in the business. He's up for the Jim Thorpe Award. Um, I'll tell you what, this is kind of interesting because I think Love has a legitimate chance of winning this award, depending on how Notre Dame does as a team. No Irish players ever won the Jim Thorpe Award, and the Butkus High School for the best high school linebacker is out as well. Jalen Smith won that, if I'm not mistaken, a few years back. Uh, Jack Kaiser, Osita Ekwunu, and Nana Osafo Mensa. Three. I know. How about that? I don't know if I butchered those badly, but I, I, I did it with a lot of confidence. You did. You did. The most confidence you've ever had. <laughs> butchered them with confidence. That's all you can do. So uh, three three representatives on the High School Butt Kiss Award watch list. So that's good news for Notre Dame. Moving on to a little bit more uh, little NFL news. Mike McGlinchey with the 49ers. Uh, he signed his deal this week. As uh, camps are opening, as you mentioned, and guys are trying to get all situated with their contracts, it's a four-year deal worth $18.3 million. Not too shabby, especially considering that all of it is fully guaranteed. As you remember, Mike McGlinchey was the number 9 overall pick. He's working out at right tackle, so expect him to start at right tackle for the 49ers this year because at left tackle, Joe Staley, one of the best in the business, he has that position locked down. Uh, Jimmy Garafalo, they're, they're really investing a lot of money to take care of their High-priced quarterback there, and you can hardly blame him. This Saturday night, the 28th, from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m., Notre Dame is going to be filming. Folks that are familiar with uh, Purcell Pavilion and Bend basketball games, be it women's or men's, they have those intro videos that they play while the players are getting introduced before the game, the starters. They're going to film some of this, and fans are allowed to be participate in it. You're supposed to meet at the outdoor bookstore courts. Um, and you're going to be part of the deal. A lot of cameras, a lot of fun. Uh, you're supposed to wear a green. So that's, again, Saturday night, the 28th. That goes from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. at the Outdoor Bookstore Basketball Courts. Sticking with women's hoops here, Skylar Diggins-Smith, who now plays for the Dallas Wings of the WNBA. She won this week the Dawn Staley Community Leadership Award. Um, that's a Dallas-based award. It's mainly, it mainly has a lot to do with she is so involved. She was she was up here when she went to Notre Dame, very involved with the Boys and Girls Club. That, that's kind of her passion. That's what she does when she gets a chance and she makes time to do it. She was very involved in the Dallas area for that, and so therefore she was celebrated and recognized for her work in the community. 
what that brings is it brings a $10,000 check from the WNBA to a charity of Skyler's Choice. She went with the South Bend Venues Parks and Arts Foundation. So good for her. She continues to do great things and uh, having a great career. I think I believe she's a three-time All-Star already. And finally, the dead period for football recruiting is over. So Notre Dame is going to be hosting again. I believe they, they were off for a month, so it's been kind of quiet on the recruiting front for the last month. But it picks up again this weekend. Um, there's going to be several guys on campus, probably headlined for recruiting visits. I'd say they're headlined by a Zeeland, Michigan defensive lineman by the name of Adam Berghorst. He's 6'7", 245 pounds, has offers from Michigan, Michigan State, among others. Uh, Notre Dame offered him when he came for a visit in February. Um, he's rated as the number 40 strong side defensive end in the country and the number 13 Michigan prospect. So he'll be on campus along with some other top flight players, and those are your blue gold nuggets. Uh, great stuff there. A lot of information. I'll go back to the uh, to McGlinchey. Uh Really, Joe Staley raving about him already and taking him under his wing from all that I am uh, reading about him. I just hope McGlinchey doesn't go on any double dates with Jimmy Garoppolo. That's, that's all I'm going to say there. <laughs> do, you, do you get that joke there, uh, Todd? <laughs> no, I don't. You don't get it? No. You didn't hear the big news about uh, Jimmy Garoppolo's uh, date last week? You didn't hear this? No, I didn't. No, oh, I'm, I'm, more, I'm, I'm locked in a couch. Oh, no, with... I understand. All right. Well, a lot it of our listeners me. probably. Well, he kind of likes to date 41-year-old porn stars. That's all I'll say. Anyhow. Oh, okay. Anywho. Well, hey. Uh, that landed it's flat on Todd. It's good to know Todd doesn't know anything about that. Uh, he, you know, he's that's how engulfed he is in Notre Dame football. But uh, the other uh, lineman that's playing in the pros, rookie uh, Quentin Nelson, apparently the center Ryan Kelly is taking him under his wing as well, and also saying great things that Kelly was a number nineteen overall pick just a couple of years ago. So uh, in a very similar situation there down in Indy. Uh, but most importantly, the guy behind those two guys is back on the. Field and Andrew Luck's been throwing the ball as we record this for a couple of days now, Todd and and gosh, those two guys, uh, Quentin Nelson and Jim and uh, and uh, Mike McGlinchey, have really two of the bigger roles uh, Notre Dame players had going into the NFL that I can quite remember in quite some time. Oh yeah, no doubt about it. it it's it, and it's exciting because when you look and we're going to talk about some of these players, we mentioned Alex Bars uh, being on the Outland Trophy list. He's another guy. He's kind of due for a breakout year for sure. And if he if he does it, there's no reason to think he can't be Notre Dame's top NFL draft pick in the, in the 2019 uh, selections. Well, we got a lot to talk about with Michigan, and we'll hear from Brady Quinn, one of the alum uh, at Notre Dame, uh, talking about his days against Michigan. And uh, you know, before we get there, and and we'll talk about the next opponent uh, that, uh, that you know in our ranking of worst to best that Notre Dame will face. And Todd's uh, accumulating that. Now. I'm wondering where Michigan might fall on that because they got a tough schedule, and we're getting closer and closer to the tougher games. But uh, we did talked about a little bit last week uh, the five impact players new players that could be on this team. Let's look at the, what is potentially the opposite of that, uh, Todd, and look at the five veterans, uh, the one with the most under their belts, that really uh, mean the most for this team heading into 2018. Yeah, and that's well prefaced because that's exactly what it is. These are the guys that have already proven themselves in many ways, but they have to continue to do so and maybe even take it to the next step. Again, we talked about the freshmen. We rated the top five freshmen that we thought would make an immediate impact. And I just, you know, I got to think, well, what about the what are the about the guys that have to make the um, the impact? So I kind of rated these from I'll, I'll count them up. I'll go from the fifth most important in my and this is just my opinion to the fourth. And I think 
I think it starts with Drew Tranquil at number five, in my opinion. Um, obviously, he was fantastic last week or last week, last year playing Rover. Ten and a half tackles for loss. Uh, that tied for second on the team. He had 85 total tackles, which was third overall on the team. This move to Buck linebacker from Rover really puts him in. Uh, it's going to be. It puts him in the position on the field, on the defense, to really be the most productive. He he should really be expected to lead the team in tackles, and I think he will. I've, I happened to walk by him on campus. I was I was showing some friends around campus and happened to see him. Man, he looks the part. He's been working out. He really looks good, looks healthy. I think he's going to have a monster year. I really do, and I think this Buck linebacker move is not only going to be good for Notre Dame, but it's going to be good for his NFL draft stock because he's just going to be more prolific. He's going to be involved in more plays. He's going to make more plays, and I think that can only help him. So to me, he's the fifth most important guy on this team. Kind of interesting because actually most of these guys, as I'm kind of looking at it, are, are defensive players. Um, I'm going to say, and I'm going to take the player right next to Drew Tranquil is number four. Uh, that's Mike linebacker Tavon Coney. It was kind of interesting because he was he was a I don't want to call him a situational player, but last season he was in a rotation. He was in a rotation quite a bit, so he wasn't on the field as much as you think he might have been, and how much he will be this year. He still led the team. I mentioned it earlier with 116 total tackles and 13 tackles for loss. This guy is another one that really looks the part. I'm excited. I don't. We'll have to wait and see if Tranquil eats into some of Coney's production. Either way, this is, I, in my opinion, when you're talking about a one-two punch at linebacker, I think that Tranquil and Coney provide one of the best in the business, one of the best in all of college football. So it'll be a lot of fun to watch. These guys both look in great shape. The number three player who really had a bust-out year last year, in my opinion, cornerback Julian Love. He was fabulous last year as a sophomore. He netted a school record 20 pass breakups. He also had three interceptions. Two of them he returned for touchdowns, which was a school record. Um, the 20 was also a school record, as I mentioned. I mean, he he was everywhere on the field, and I don't expect anything to be different. Just has a knack for the game, has a knack for the ball, and, and I'm excited to watch him play again. I expect just as big things from Julian Love as we got last year. Let's hope so, anyways. Um, certainly... You mentioned Jim Thorpe Award. I would think I would consider him one of the front runners on most of the All American teams. He's listed as either the number one cornerback in the country or number two. So certainly the pub is following him around. Let's move over to the other side of the football. I think center Sam Mustafer because he's a captain this year. He's been so steady. I know there's some question marks when you're talking about Ian Leichenberg on the left side, their left tackle, and some shuffling on the right side with Tommy Kramer to guard and, and Hainsey to uh, out there. On right tackle, although Hainsey's familiar with that right tackle position, there's just a steadiness that I think Mustafer in the middle of this of this group provides, and I think he's that's why he's going to be one of the most important players. He's kind of the quarterback of the offensive line. You need these guys. You need these strong voices. He was voted a team captain. He's a fifth year player. I think that steadiness that he provides will help absorb the losses of Quentin Nelson and Mike McGlinchey this season. I don't think this offensive line is going to miss a beat. I really don't. And finally, I think the number one most important player on this team, it's another defensive guy. I just, we've talked about him at length. He's, I'm fascinated by this position move, but Jerry Tillery, defensive tackle. You know, he was a nose guard last year, got double teamed on every, almost every single play, got shoved around quite a bit, still had a nice year. He really did, did a lot last year, considering, like I said, he was double teamed all the time. Um, had four and a half sacks and 11 quarterback hurries. 
That's pretty. That, that's pretty impressive production from a nose guard. You know, rags. You don't see that that often because these guys are more just kind of run stoppers, just kind of clog the middle. But now I think moving him out a little bit to the three technique, where he's not going to face all those double teams and he can create a lot of havoc. He, he's another guy that really looks the part. Has been working hard and seems absolutely all into this thing. I think Jerry Tillery, what the kind of disruption he can cause up front and finally get this Notre Dame pass rush in order. I think he's the number one player, the most important player on this team this year, Rags. That's a great list there. And if, if you're going to do a 5B or a 6, I, I, to me it's got to be uh, Jones Jr., Tony Jones Jr. on running back. Especially, I mean, we still don't know what's going on. I'd say Dexter Williams would be another one, uh, B, B and C there. for Because uh, running, sure. running back to me is that vital position this year that is the biggest question mark heading in because, A, we don't know the disciplinary action is going to happen with Williams, and we still don't if there's going to be any, and B, who's going to actually step up to replace the guy that was running like a, a wildfire the first six, seven games last year? Yeah, and when you look at it, now there's you know four out of the five I mentioned there were defensive players. I, I guess it's just because it's so settled and you know what you're going to get. When yeah. you flip over the offensive side of the football, you really don't. You mentioned running back. I think there's just as many question marks as wide, at wide receiver. Chase Claypool and Miles Boykin have both underachieved to this point in their careers. Everybody's expecting a bust-out season from We'll have to wait and see if that indeed happens. And if you're going to talk about important, but I was kind of talking about guys that really have produced in sure. the past. Yeah, and, and Tony Jones, I, I mean, he played all 12 games. He doesn't have a lot of carries underneath his belt, that's for sure. Yeah, that's kind of what I predicated that list on, for sure. I mean, obviously, if you just want to talk raw importance, I suppose number <laughs> one would obviously be Brandon Wimbush. You know, yes, so. good point. Uh, I did hear, too, that they're actually cross-training a couple guys at running back. I mean, I guess to uh, to you know lengthen the depth there, um, uh, what's going on on the field. I, you know, I think Jafar Armstrong's actually uh-huh. is, uh, war- is, is going to get some reps. And uh, Avery Davis, too, maybe at running back uh, instead of quarterback. They want to get Avery Davis on the field big time. He's actually cross-trained at wide receiver as well, and the coaches have raved about the job he's been doing trying to digest it all. He's still getting his minimal some reps at quarterback as the number three guy, but you know he's he's all over the practice field rags. I mean, running back here for a bit, wide receiver here, and the coaches, they, they said they cannot keep him off the field. So he's a playmaker, and we're going to see quite a bit of him. I have a feeling, if, if for nothing else, I know we're going to see him on special teams. Well, that may be a slot receiver, too. You're going to see him a lot in in that kind of role, you know, wildcat kind of thing. You never know. Uh, yeah, at least it's good to know, not knowing what's going on with Dexter Williams, that maybe we have some people that can't step up. Has there been any uh, advancement in that story at all? Now, at this point, not really. I mean, obviously, it's kind of a quiet time, so we'll start to get some more answers to some of these as camp opens, and we can actually get our eyeballs on these guys again. But at this point, everything's a little bit under wraps, Rags. It's, it's kind of hard to uh, to kind of speculate what's going on. All right, so we now know the five vets that uh, really need to step up. What about the the five guys that you know kind of just need to emerge the most for this team to be successful at any uh, set of experience? Yeah, I think indeed, you know, when you talked about those, those steady veterans, when we gave that first list, you know, you, you kind of know what you're going to get there. But I think when we look at this list, we'll call it time to shine. These are the guys that are going to be the make or break players. Again, I think you know what you're going to get from those five that I mentioned. These are the guys you're not 100% sure. I mean, let's start with Brandon Wimp. You know, actually, I'm going to go, I'm going to go five to one. So we'll sit on him here for a second. I'm going to lump Boykin and Claypool together. You know, Boykin only has 18 career catches. It seems like he's been here forever. You would have expected him to have bigger numbers than that. Now, both these guys were raved about and played very well in the spring. 
both shined in the spring game as well. A couple great big targets, a couple six five six six targets here. So if both of them can play well together, look out, especially when you throw Alize Mack in there, another big target. This offense, this passing offense, really should thrive. I think if one or the other, if Claypool or Boykin can emerge, I think you're going to get something. Uh, you, it, I think that's going to help the offense immensely, too. So these are two guys we've been waiting for, and I think their time has come. We'll have to wait and see, um, but somebody to keep an eye on, too. Uh, a couple guys to keep an eye on, I should say. Safety Jalen Elliott. He's another one. Now, the safety play was not very good last year. Should be a lot better this year with Lohi Gilman becoming eligible. The Navy transfer, again, another guy that has drawn high, high praise from the coaching staff, his teammates, and everybody involved. But Jalen Elliott, you know, he he just he has not really achieved and lived up to his recruiting make, uh, rankings. He just didn't make enough plays in 2017. He really didn't. Uh, he'll be a second-year starter. He needs to. He needs to be counted on. Keep in mind, Rags, for the first time in Notre Dame football history last year, uh, since they since players specialized at one position, the safety position did not record a single interception, and that's unacceptable. And I think that a lot of that falls on Jalen Elliott. I mentioned Alex Bars. When Alex Bars was good last season, I think you could honestly make a case that he was probably the second-best blocker on the team behind Quentin Nelson. I firmly believe that. He was that good. problem with Alex Bars was a lot of inconsistency. He would look so good in certain games, certain stretches of games, and then he'd just get munched on later on in the same game or in another game. I don't know if it was mental focus, what the case may be, but obviously with losing two guys in the top ten in the NFL draft, He's going to have to emerge. He's going to have to really be a steady, stabilizing force on that left side. I mean, keep in mind, he's taken the position of Quentin Nelson. So uh, we'll have to wait and see. But I think he's another guy that really needs to step up. Number two, in my opinion, and this I've been all over this, Alizé Mack. I mean, come on. Uh, when he came to Notre Dame, I thought he was going to be the best tight end ever to play at Notre Dame. And that has not been the case, be it suspensions, academics, whatever the case may be. Injuries have been mixed in there a little bit, too. He has not lived up. To, to anything that was expected of him. He seems to be all in at this point. Now, sometimes this cat this cat can get easily sidetracked. Stranger things have happened with him. But I think Alizé Mack at tight end is poised for a bust-out year if Brandon Wimbush can get him the football. And I'm looking forward to that because I think he still is an NFL prospect. Now, keep in mind, since he had to sit out 2016 with academic reasons, he does still have two years of eligibility remaining. But if he has a bust-out season this season, he will be gone because he'll have his degree, and certainly I don't think he'll stick around. So I think the best news for Notre Dame would not be have him come back for a fifth season. And uh, finally, by the way, he graduated with a film, TV, and theater uh, degree. A lot of them. So, yeah, I'm a lot of them do. Hey. <laughs> At least it wasn't. I'm not gonna. At least it wasn't the history of you know. Uh, listen, comic books. But anyway, yeah. um, I digress. I'm not gonna knock it. I, I listen. I take it if I could get it. Hey, I'm yeah, in. Exactly. I, I'm, I'm in the media, and I didn't get that degree. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. And then finally, Wimbush quarterback, quarterback Brandon Wimbush. He, he has he has to step up here. I think the leash will be short on him, especially with uh, Phil Jerkovich and uh, obviously Ian Book in tow here. I just I, I to not complete fifty cent fifty percent of your passes is, is a crime and. Especially considering he, he actually completed 71% of his passes in high school. There was one season, I believe it was his junior season, he was on pace to break the record for the mo- for the best 
completion percentage by a high school quarterback in the history of the sport, which is pretty interesting. Now, granted, they were just a lot of dink and dunks. It was more of a running offense. So, and high school's high school. So let's not put too much stock into that. But certainly the mechanics have to get better. The coaches keep telling us. And if he can pick his spots and then he's got, got a lot of talented players around him, if they can put a running game to help, help kind of ease the pressure on him. I think he can have a good year. I don't think he's going to be put up any kind of monster year like a Brady Quinn or somebody like that. That's just not in his DNA. But I think, you know, given his legs, if he can bounce it out, cut the turnovers down, and keep moving the chains better than he did last year, I think he can have a successful season. So when it comes time to shine, I think Brandon Wimbush is clearly the number one guy on that list. That's great. I, I, let's go back to to Mac here for a second, and I just sure. want, I want to pose this to you, um, and, and we do, look at the development of Wimbush. I mean, because Smythe had a down year too as a senior as at tight end. I'm wondering if these quarterbacks that they have recently just aren't looking to the tight end as much as they should be as a safety valve and are looking to their own legs as a safety valve instead because, I mean, I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg. Are these guys running bad routes so they're not getting open so the quarterbacks don't look at them? Or are are the Wimbushes and the, and, and the Kaisers and such just not relying on their tight ends as much as they should be? It's an excellent question. I think with Wimbush, it was clearly the case where he would bail out and and, and run the ball. I don't I guess I would kind of disagree with you that Smythe had a down year. Um, I think you got what you were going to get out of him. Um, I mean, I want more than 15 catches, Todd. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. But I don't, I don't remember him being targeted that much. That's what I I mean. That's that's my point. You know, it just seems like they're either running bad routes or they just don't. Because you look at a lot of the successful, you know, quarterback to tight ends connections. That's the safety valve. These guys are just relying on the quarterbacks. Like nobody's open. Well, somebody's uh, Tyler's going to be open. Let me let me find him. You know what I'm saying? It just doesn't seem like they're doing that. They're not programmed to do that. Yeah, agreed. And uh, yeah, and Mac only had and Mac had 19 catches last year, which is which is down as well. Only 32 for his career. Uh, yeah, 19 catches, 166 yards, and the one TD. The thing about Mac last year, though. His production, most of that, most of those numbers I just gave you came in about the first six or seven games. He was a completely MIA when it came to late in the season. So, well, and then getting uh, suspended, then getting suspended too. Obviously, he's yeah. a bit of a knucklehead too. So that doesn't help. No, for sure. So hopefully they can uh, get him out of that. Yeah, six five two forty four. So a huge target there. Another huge target. Um, I don't know. It's a good question. Maybe the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Maybe yeah. Wimbush pulled it down and ran it too soon. Maybe his guys weren't doing such a good job of getting open. It's hard to answer. Like I said, truth probably lies in the middle somewhere. But you're right. When, you, when you're struggling and you're not even completing 50, 50% of your passes, you would think that the tight end would provide a nice bailout bailout uh, target for you. Especially the target as big as those two guys were. <laughs> There's no doubt about yeah. it. All right, let's talk about our next opponent as we rank upwards the best opponents on the uh, Notre Dame's list of who they're playing this year. Uh, Todd, uh, we're up to the next one. And, and this is where I think we've crossed that uh, Mason-Dixon line where it's going to start getting a little tough. As you look in the ACC, you've got Wake Forest coming up next. Yeah, totally agree with you, Rags. Okay, I'm just going to count them down what we've done so far. We thought Ball State was the 12th, um, the easiest opponent on the schedule. Then came Vanderbilt, then Syracuse, then Pitt, and then Navy. And I think you're right. I think I, I think maybe you even turned the page a little bit with Navy last sure. year, but I know, or last week, but I know you do with Wake Forest. This is a talented football team. Um, last November, Notre Dame played them. 
and improved to eight and one and remained number three in the college football playoff when they beat Wake Forest forty-eight to thirty-seven. Sounds a bit like a close game, but keep in mind this was—I I remember this. Yeah. Notre Dame was up forty-one-sixteen. It was a route. Uh, yeah, late in the third quarter. And, I mean, the Demon Deacons turned it on. Uh, they had 75, 70, and 90-yard touchdown drives on their last three uh, possessions. So that made it interesting. I know it kind of ticked Brian Kelly off <laughs> for sure. Notre Dame had 710 yards in that game. Wake Forest piled up 587. So quite a shootout, which was really kind of par for the course um, for Wake Forest last year. Not a lot to talk about defensively, but offensively, they actually set a record, um, program record, with 35.3 points a game, and then 465.8 yards per game. And they're going to lose their quarterback. He was a four-year starter in John Wolford and certainly a great player, but they return a lot on offense. I don't think they're going to drop off a whole bunch. As a matter of fact, they return all five starting linemen, um, and they have a a freshman All-American from last year, wideout, in Greg Dortch. He's actually on that uh, Blitnikoff Award list. I remember I was talking about it. He had 53 catches and nine TDs as a freshman last year in only eight games, Rags. How impressive is that? 53 catches, nine TDs. He played in eight games and then was injured. Um, They also have running back returning Matt Colburn. He had 904 rushing yards and 5.4 yards per carry last year. This is a tricky. This is a tricky opponent. They, they need to improve on defense. Dave Clawson will be in his fifth season in Winston Salem. Um, last year, actually, Clawson did a great job. It was really a bust out season for him in many respects um, because it was the first time since two. Let's see, what, what was it? For the first time since two thousand eight, Wake Forest finished with eight victories and a bowl victory in the same season. So they finished eight and five once all was said and done. But I talked about the shootouts, and man, they piled up in November. Uh, check this out. Okay, so after the Notre Dame shootout um, that we talked about, came back and Wake Forest beat Syracuse 64-43 to and then beat North Carolina, upset North Carolina State 30-24, to and then finally finished off its season with a 55-52 triumph over Texas A&M in the Belk Bowl. So certainly a, a team that is gifted when it comes to scoring the ball. Um, obviously, there's a little bit of history with Clark Lee, who worked at Wake Forest there. Uh, let's see. Notre Dame, will it be favored? Probably so. Um, well, I'm, I'm trying to figure I mean, definitely it would be favored, even though the game is down there. I think it's probably going to be around a 10-point spread. Um, again, a lot of returning players here for Wake Forest offensively and defensively. This it could really be an ornery road game. This is one of those games where you want Notre Dame to get off to a quick start and really do do the do the job offensively. I think Notre Dame is going to have to score well into the 40s because I'm not, I'm convinced that Wake Forest is probably going to put up some points in this one. Um so again, 48-37 last year, and I think probably uh probably somewhat similar. I don't know that Wake Forest gets to 37 because I think Notre Dame's defense is going to be that good, but again, this is an ornery bunch here and a pretty good opponent, Rags. Yeah, no doubt about it. And the thing I remember most about last year, I, I actually look at last year the half of that game was the turning point in the Notre Dame season. If you remember, that, yeah, is, yeah. that, that is the game. I mean, they, they blew him out. Wimbush went crazy, ran for two touchdowns. But he ran for two touchdowns because that's the game I went out and bought a Route 33 hat. Got all pumped up, went to the game, and that was pretty much the last we saw of Josh Adams. Uh, I think he had a, a few, a handful of carries, and he had the migraine, and it would just never seem the same after that game in November, and, and the rest was history. 
Yeah, you're right because that was it. That second half of that game, it was it, it kind of all got away from them it because did. they were really they were really humming along defensively. Um, I remember the scoring defense was I want to say top ten, we'll definitely say top fifteen at the time, and they were really doing it was just such a reminder of the 2012 season with sort of the dominance that Notre Dame was putting together, especially in critical situations in games, be it third down and those types of things. But boy, that was it. Those three touchdown drives really flipped the script, and that's when they went two and two. I mean, that was going to feed into the Miami game and yep. the Stanford game, and, and that's that, that's kind of where it all all fell apart a little bit on him. You're right. That's a, that's a great call, and not just the team, but Mr. Adams himself. All right, let's look at uh, the Michigan and Notre Dame uh, uh, rivalry here, and what it means to one particular player uh, who's experienced it uh, first uh, firsthand, and that is Brady Quinn. He did a interview uh, on uh, Big Ten Network with Isaiah Hull. Um, and, and they kind of talked about, you know, the, the Michigan-Notre Dame dynamic. Uh, and we thought it would be a good idea, since we are inching closer to September 1st and that first mm-hmm. big game, to take a listen to what Brady had to say about it. First off, Brady, when you heard that the rivalry between Michigan and Notre Dame was back on, what were your thoughts? Oh, I was excited. I mean, come on. This is one of the best robbers in college football. And, and for me, it, you know, from playing against Michigan all four years, it meant something different because I was recruited by both. I almost went to Michigan, um, but at the last minute, I just I felt like Notre Dame was a better fit for what I was looking for out of my experience. Um, so I chose Notre Dame, but I became very close at the time with Scott Leffler. He was the quarterback coach. He was the one that was really responsible for recruiting me. Tom Herman um, was my area recruiter, a great guy. Um, my family loved him, uh, and we loved Michigan. Uh, we really did. So. It was, uh, it was almost like every single year besides the rivalry itself and the history between the two uh, schools, it was, it was also for me kind of proving to myself that I made the right decision um, by going to Notre Dame. Like I always felt like that was in the back of my mind. Now, it's a very different rivalry than, say, like Michigan-Ohio State or Notre Dame-USC. In what ways to you does it, does it, did it feel different as a player playing in it? Well, I think there's a lot of respect between the two schools. And to be quite honest, they're, they're very, very similar. And I'm not trying to say Ohio State and Michigan aren't, but, you know, typically, you know, you grow up and you're going to one over the other. There's not too many guys who are on the fence about choosing between Michigan and Ohio State when they're trying to pick their school they want to go to. Um, so there's, there's that mutual level of respect, I think. That's part of it. Very similar institutions in regards to how high of academic standards they hold for their student body. Uh, then, you know, from a football standpoint, I mean, you think about all the success they've had through such a long period of time, and that plays into it as well. It, it's actually, is it kind of like, in a, in a way, as a, one of my friends always put it, it was like, almost like Michigan and Notre Dame were always trying to out-tradition each other. Yeah, that's, that's probably one way you'd put it. You know, um, two teams that have been historically some of the most successful in college football history, um, they don't forget it. They don't mm-hmm. let you forget it. Uh, so that was always on the line, too. Uh, it wasn't just for the older fans that are on the stands. It's for the generations to come to ensure that that legacy is still left. Now, I don't know how much you've gotten a chance to watch Shea Patterson during his time at Ole Miss, but uh, assuming that you were able to, what what kind of what do you see out of him as a quarterback? And one of the knocks that a lot of Michigan's rivals tend to have against him is that he, you know, he, he played really well against teams like Tennessee, you know, Tennessee Martin, but against Alabama and LSU, kind of some sub, subpar outings. 
like what do you see out of him both as a quarterback and quarterbacks that played that well against Alabama yeah. and LSU, LSU last year. I mean, maybe a guy like Deshaun Watson, right? Johnny Manziel, I think, did it one time. He got a lot of praise for that. Uh, I hope we're not making that the standard because there's a lot of quarterbacks that are going to look bad then if that's the standard. But there is something to, I think, him um, having better performances versus some of the lesser opponents and, and that maybe is padding his stats. But you know, look, the bottom line is the guy can create. He can make plays uh, by buying time with his feet to make throws downfield. He keeps his eyes downfield, which is huge, especially when you're talking about an offensive line that could need to work on some things and is going up against one of the best defensive lines in the country in Ohio State at the end of the season. So that's going to come big time into play then. Uh, and, and in particular versus Notre Dame early, you know, it's, it's a, depending on how that all shakes out. Um, but he, he can make all the throws. He's got a live arm. He's got the ability to throw with touch but with pace. Uh, we always talk about a two ball. Um, there's your fastball. There's your high arcing, you know, deep ball. But there's also got to be the ball you can throw in between. And that's one that has enough zip and enough arc to get over the secondary level defenders, but in behind them and in front of the deep safety uh, where he can drop those throws in. He can do that. He's displayed the ability to do that at Ole Miss. So, uh, again, I, I think he's going to open up a lot of things for this offense this season. Now, switching gears to your alma mater, what, you know, Michigan fans probably don't have the kind of knowledge that they had about Notre Dame from a couple of years ago because when, you know, back when the rivalry was happening every year, it's been several, you know, since 2014 now. Uh, what should Michigan fans know about where what Notre Dame is good at, what maybe Notre Dame needs to work on going into the game this year? The biggest thing they need to do improve uh, from last year is their passing game, and that is still being uh, decided right now. There's a quarterback competition between Brandon Wimbush and Ian Book, and uh, whoever comes out of that, there's going to be a little bit more pressure on their shoulders because Josh Adams moved on to the NFL. Uh, Dexter Williams is back, and they've got some depth there running back, but no one with the same type of proven ability and that we've seen really do it at a high level in the backfield returning. So that's the that's the first thing is there's going to be more pressure on whichever quarterback that is. Uh, and the running game is not proven like it was before. McGlinchey, Nelson, their left tackle, left guard, went both in the top 10 of this year's first round uh, in, in the NFL draft. Those guys are gone. So you know their interior offensive line should be really good. Mm-hmm. It's the edges that are more concerns and probably more left tackle um, considering that's been you know, a cornerstone of their offensive line uh, since McGlinchey was there and really that left side, the blind side, um, with Nelson on that side too. But Haynes will be the right tackle. He should be fine. Um, then Leichenberg, I think, is, is, is who's going to be slated at least now at left tackle. Um, that could be a problem spot, right, especially when you've got a guy like, you know, Rashawn Gary uh, who's on your defensive line uh, and Chase Winovich on the other side. It's not like you can just, you know, focus on one side. You've got two guys you have to worry about week one. Um, their wide receivers are going to be tough for Michigan to match up with, not so much because of speed, uh, but because of size. Miles Boykin, uh, six foot four, 230 pounds. Chase Claypool's about the same size. Alizé Mack, their tight end, he's got a lot of size and athleticism too, like 6'5", 250 pounds. So um, those are tough matchups, I think, even for the best cornerbacks because unless you're Richard Sherman and you've got that 6'2 frame uh, and the ability to leap and still make plays in the football, uh, it becomes tough then when you're not one of those taller, lankier cornerbacks or even safeties that's that good in coverage. So um, that's, the, that's something that they're going to have to look out for. Um, from the Notre Dame defense, they should be improved upon last year, even though they, they missed some pieces, but they've got guys like um, Tillery coming back on the defensive front, Dalen Hayes, who's kind of poised for a breakout year as far as rushing the passer. Um, and, and you look at their secondary, a lot of depth. I mean, when you go through the two deep on their defense, a lot of experience, 
a lot of guys returning who are juniors and seniors, upperclassmen. So um, there's not going to be any gimmies. There's not going to be any busted coverages. You know, uh, Mike Elko left went to Texas A&M, but Clark Lee, who was there last year as well, he's taken over as far as the, the defensive play calling. So um, they're going to be on the same page. Those guys should be a very disciplined uh, group that they're going to they're, they're gonna have to go up against. Uh, in that same vein that you mentioned, like Rashawn Gary and Chase Winovich being a, a problem for you know whoever ends up being the left tackle for Notre Dame, what other key areas are do you uh, you know look at Notre Dame and saying like wow I don't really want I don't really like this matchup for them when it comes to Michigan um well it's I, I think again you look at some of the playmaking building the outside of Michigan I don't know that anyone feels comfortable when you've got a guy like Donovan Peoples-Jones but that's sort of size and ability matching up against him I mean I think if you're going to compare the cornerbacks at Michigan right now and Notre Dame the ones in Michigan are more proven you know Don Brown's defense is more proven so um, that would there'd be a slight edge towards Michigan if we're just being completely objective about it uh, so that's one of the things um, you know but it's it's it should be a really interesting matchup it really should be because there's going to be growing pains that Shea Patterson goes through Right, and the entire offense goes through when you've got you know Warner and McElwain and um, different guys now calling the plays, and it's week one, so you, you can't really afford to make those mistakes. Um, and Brandon Wimbush has um, you know more experience if he ends up being the guy, and I think he will be just because he adds that element of being able to hurt you with his legs. Um, so I. I know I'm not necessarily giving you an advantage for Michigan so much, but for me, I, I think it's a, it's a pretty even matchup. I, I think one thing to keep an eye on is with the youth, or I, guess, I should say an experience in the offensive line for Michigan, uh, one of the struggles for Notre Dame last year was just getting pressure with rushing four. And that's something I would be kind of keeping an eye on is, you know, how often Clark Lee has to bring pressure in order to get pressure on Shea Patterson, and how does that offensive line hold up in their first game um, with a lot of inexperienced guys working together versus that Notre Dame defensive front. All right, Todd, one more aspect of the Notre Dame-Michigan game coming up to start the season is what it could mean for Jim Harbaugh. He, he's going to go into some rarefied air here if he's able to knock off Notre Dame on that first uh, Saturday of the season. Yeah, I have to give my esteemed editor, Lou Samoji at Blue and Gold Illustrated, credit for this one. I thought this was pretty cool that uh, Jim Harbaugh has a chance to become only the sixth coach in the history of Notre Dame football to beat the Irish with two different teams. And the list goes way back, and it's actually is fairly recent as well. So I'm going to count them down for you. Obviously, Harbaugh coached, beat Stanford in his last two years there, coaching the Cardinal. Uh, that was in 2009 and 2010 before he left for San Francisco. Um, so he actually has a two-game winning streak against Brian Kelly and Notre Dame as a coach. Let's go all the way back. Howard Jones beat Newt Rockney's Irish. He beat him with an Iowa team in 1921, and then he moved on to USC, and he actually beat Rockney several times. Uh, the first one came uh, with USC in 1928, so that's gone way back. You know, some, in- some names here that you're going to really recognize. Johnny Majors, um, Pittsburgh, beat Notre Dame in 75 and 76 with majors at the helm. And then he moved on to Tennessee, and he beat Notre Dame when he was coaching Tennessee in 79 and again in 91. Dennis Erickson, former Miami coach, he beat the Irish with Miami in 1989. That was actually the year after the national championship season for Notre Dame in 88. And then he beat him again, coaching Oregon State in 2001. That was the Fiesta Bowl game, if you remember. I, wasn't that Bob Dave, was that Bob Davies' last hurrah, or was that a Willingham? I'd have to look at that. I think it was Bob Davey. Uh, moving on to Nick Saban. Beat Notre Dame three straight years, 97, 98, and 99, while coaching Michigan State. And then, of course, we can all go back to the 2012 National Championship game when he 
did, did Notre Dame up pretty handily uh, with coaching Alabama. This one's a little bit of a surprise. I don't know that I would have gotten this one. I think I would have gotten Majors, Erickson, and Saban if somebody would have had me name these guys. Or certainly Howard Jones. I think he was a he was a singer or something, was he? A yeah, things can only get wham? better. Yeah, no, things yeah, can only yeah. get better. He was a solo <laughs> artist there, Todd. Give him, give him his due. <laughs> All right, my bad. Johnny Majors <laughs> sounds like a, a, an action hero. I, I had that doll when I was growing up. I had Johnny Majors, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so most recently, Todd Graham. Wow. Todd Graham is yeah. now yeah two different schools. Remember Tulsa in 2010 and what was probably the rock bottom game in many respects for Brian Kelly in his first year here. That was coming off the Declan Sullivan tragedy when he fell off the scissor lift and and they they just been beaten by Navy as well. They lost consecutively to Tulsa and Navy during that stretch. I don't remember what order those those upset losses came in, but certainly it was a downtime for the program. Then he came back and he beat. Notre Dame and Brian Kelly in 2014 coaching Arizona State. Um, actually, he coached Pitt in between those, and Brian Kelly actually beat him. So Todd Graham, of all coaches, has coached against Brian Kelly with three different teams, and he's 2-1. and one. Uh, The only one I would have got was Nick Saban, to be honest with you. Uh, (laughs) The other ones I would not have gotten. And you were right. It was Bob Davey in 2001 when they got trounced in the Fiesta Bowl. So uh, you were right. Was that it? Yeah. Yeah, that I think was that it. might have been it for him. Yeah. Uh, all right, Todd, uh, you did it. That was it. Another uh, Blue Gold Report in the books. Uh, we'll do it all over again next week. Be sure to uh, follow both Todd and I on Twitter. And, of course, uh, you can uh, follow Blue Gold Report on Twitter as well, at Blue Gold Report. It's that simple. Uh, D.O. McComan Sons Funeral Homes brings you the Blue Gold Report every Friday, your podcast. We'll be back again to record on Friday afternoon again next week. Todd, have a good week. All right, my friend? Thanks, Rags. That was fun. This has been a presentation of Optin Productions. Podcasts by Federated Media. Podcasts by Federated Media.